welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 70. It's also another episode of Room for Debate. We have a great show for you, so let's get right into it. All right, well, it's really great to have both of you here today. Um, we have two wonderful discussants for this debate. Uh, Dr. Max Koenig, who is a fellow at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and Dr. Mike Putman, who is an assistant professor at Medical College of Wisconsin. Um, and the motion that we are going to debate today is a very interesting one, and it is that hydroxychloroquine levels should be monitored in patients with lupus. And arguing for this motion will be Max, who will speak first, and then it will be followed by Mike, who will be speaking against the motion. Um, just a little update, we did a short Twitter poll, uh, and the results so far are that 29% of people who voted agree with the motion that hydroxychloroquine levels should be monitored, 45% disagree with that motion, and 27% are undecided, meaning that there's a lot of you out there who we have um, some room to convince. So I look forward to these arguments, and we'll start off the debate um, with Dr. Koenig arguing for the motion hydroxychloroquine levels should be monitored in patients with lupus. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. It's a fantastic topic. I'm really excited to debate it with you. So um, I think hydroxychloroquine levels should be used in the management of patients with systemic lupus erythematosus. And even though we're still learning how to use these tests effectively, I think there's enough data available for you to start using hydroxychloroquine levels now. Incorporating hydroxychloroquine blood level measurement in your clinical practice, I think has five major advantages. Advantage number one is that hydroxychloroquine hydroxychloroquine levels can identify medication non-adherence, both absolute and partial. Advantage number two is that measuring hydroxychloroquine blood levels can actually improve adherence to hydroxychloroquine over time. Thirdly, lower hydroxychloroquine blood levels have repeatedly been associated with disease flares. And more recent data points towards lower hydroxychloroquine blood levels predicting risk of thrombotic events in lupus as well. And finally, in the last parent is harder to study and there might be some conflicting data to date, high hydroxychloroquine levels may predict retinopathy. So even though our knowledge how to best use these levels um, and to, to balance advantage and, and disadvantage is emerging, I think using hydroxychloroquine blood levels in your routine clinical practice is better than the current practice alternative. And that's frankly flying blind and not being aware of the problem. There has been a lot of heated uh, discourse over the past 10 years on what appropriate hydroxychloroquine doses should be. And there is a lot of confusion in clinical practice, both among rheumatologists and among ophthalmologists. And that should not be a surprise. You're basically asked to make a decision on a population level for a drug that has vastly different kinetics in an individual patient, that patient in front of you. So we have to frame the problem. Problem number one is the risk of toxicity. And we have to acknowledge this hydroxychloroquine is a very unique drug with complex and poorly understood pharmacokinetics. That's owing to its unique tropism and lysosomes in different cell compartments, large volumes of distribution and long terminal half-lives. But it also has a very narrow therapeutic window. The minimum reported lethal dose is just a few grams, so we're going from therapeutic benefit to death in maybe a log difference, give or take. We're all aware of the consequences of too high hydroxychloroquine levels, the risk of retinopathy and vision loss, 
arrhythmogenic potential and other organ damage due to tissue deposition like cardiomyopathy. So it is apparent that dosing hydroxychloroquine too high is dangerous for our patients who are typically exposed for many years or decades. If we could identify these patients that are chronically overdosed, it would behoove us not to use that test. The second point is equally important, and that is the lack of efficacy. We know that hydroxychloroquine has a myriad of benefits in lupus, and it should be used as a baseline therapeutic in all patients unless there are contraindications. The drug, however, does not start to work when we prescribe it, but it actually needs to get into the patient on a regular basis. And yet adherence in lupus is a huge and vastly unaddressed problem. Um, estimates of drug adherence vary wildly in the literature, but are somewhere between 3% and 80% of patients that are non-adherent or only poorly adherent. So if we can identify can identify these patients um, and, 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 and modify um, their dosing based on individual levels, it would be uh, dramatically improving potentially um, the ability to get these patients into a therapeutic range. So I think to summarize, there are enough advantages that have data in the literature already that back up the use of hydroxychloroquine blood levels in SLE. And I think we should start using them now rather than wait. Very good. Thank you very much for that strong argument in favor of monitoring uh, hydroxychloroquine levels um, in lupus. You know, you touched on some very important topics, including adherence and, um, and toxicities. And I'm really looking forward to Dr. Putman's rebuttal of this statement. <laughs> so with that, I will introduce or go back to um, Mike, who is going to be arguing against the motion, again, that um, hydroxychloroquine levels should be monitored in patients with lupus. All right. Thank you to both. Uh, that was a great introduction and a great opening statement. Um, I'm very excited to be doing this. So let me start by taking a step back and sort of establishing what matters. Uh, and that is to improve the quality and the duration of life for patients with lupus. I mean, those are the goals and that's what we're shooting for. Now that can be through fewer flares, lower morbidity, any other patient centric metric you choose. Um, if that is the goal, I do not think we should measure hydroxychloroquine levels. And I have three reasons for that. First, uh, I don't think the best data do support this practice as an intervention. Second, widespread adoption may result in less hydroxychloroquine use, which concerns me. And third, such monitoring, in my opinion, may threaten the doctor-patient relationship. So let me take each in turn. So for starters, I think the value of this is just um, very hopeful and promising, but it has not yet been con convincingly demonstrated. If a patient is inadequately controlled on hydroxychloroquine, you can increase the dose. And if they're adequately controlled without flares, I, I don't think I would generally recommend decreasing the dose. So, um, you know, I would not, so to date, I, don't, I haven't seen a whole lot of evidence that a strategy of targeting labs is superior to just doing that. Um, this has been investigated. Um, the best data to date comes from the 2012 PLUS study that was in ARD. It's a double-blind, placebo-controlled, multi-center RCT, patients with lupus and hydroxychloroquine levels from 100 um, uh, nanograms per milliliter to 750 were randomized to either continue hydroxychloroquine as they were, or to increase their target dose to a level of 1,000 nanograms per milliliter higher. Um, they had 573 patients who were included in this study, which is a lot. 176 were ultimately randomized. And what did we find? <clears throat> no benefit. 
Flares were almost identical, 27.6% versus 25%. This was not statistically significant. And it numerically actually favored usual care, not monitoring levels. Now, the next reason is that widespread adoption of hydroxychloroquine <clears throat> monitoring could be counterproductive. In the PLUS study I just mentioned, patients with hydroxychloroquine levels of over, over 750 were actually excluded, and there were 353 of such patients. So that's a lot of people who would have been exposed to potentially dose lowering had they been in the study. If this becomes widespread, you can bet our good friends in ophthalmology, as well as many well-meaning rheumatologists, will be lowering the doses of hydroxychloroquine in an effort to hit these um, therapeutic targets. Now, I, you know, I just asked the audience, how many of us actually believe that our patients with lupus are afflicted by too much hydroxychloroquine? I, I don't think that that's generally a, a problem that we have, although Max was totally correct that there's toxicities and we should definitely try to avoid those. <laughs> Given the past few years of reducing doses in light of ophthalmology recommendations, I, I, I'm just worried about anything that's going to lead to widespread lowering of hydroxychloroquine further. And last and, and possibly most importantly, I, I'm really worried that this could harm the doctor-patient relationship. So, I mean, anyone who cares for patients with lupus knows that many of these folks, often for good reason, uh, feel disrespected by the medical industrial complex. Um, confronting people with evidence of non-adherence may work in some cases for some providers, uh, but I fear that for many others it will result in alienation, loss of trust, and people just avoiding important their appointments entirely. I'm sure that great doctors like Max can navigate these conversations successfully and, and not have that happen as much, but I, I worry about expanding that across the world. Non-adherence is bad, but being lost to follow-up is much worse. So in summary, um, I don't think the best data uh, support this practice. Widespread adoption may result in decreasing hydroxychloroquine, which would be bad, as well as adversarial interactions between patients and providers. Um, I think hydroxychloroquine monitoring could be useful, certainly should be uh, validated and investigated, uh, but I think those should be done before this is widely adopted. So please head on over to Twitter and vote no on this motion. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Putman, <laughs> All right. um, for that strong opening statement as well. I have a couple of questions. You guys both brought up really relevant points and important studies that I think it would be great to go into a little bit more um, detail about. So. I'll start off with this question, um, and Max, if you could target it or tackle it first. Um, you know, Mike, when he was talking about his argument, said that quoted the plus study um, and was talking about you know drug levels and adherence um, and whether we should be really increasing the doses in patients based on those those preset values. Um, and do you want to comment on what your thoughts are on that study? Since he mentioned that they really didn't make a big difference um, in terms of patient outcomes and quality of life? Yeah, thank you very much. I think that's a, a very important point to, to hone in on more. Um, I, I'm not surprised that Mike brought in the PLUS study. It is the highest level evidence we have to date. And um, I think it's worthwhile to dissect the study a little bit more. Overall, even though I didn't go into the details, there is a, a, a many evidence now accumulating in the literature, not necessarily from randomized controlled trials, that all have a common theme. And the theme is that lower hydroxychloroquine levels um, translate to an increased risk of uh, disease activity and flare. Um, the study that um, Mike mentioned was published, as, as he mentioned, in, in ARD in 2012 by the French group, and it did not meet its primary endpoint. 
we all know the difficulty of conducting lupus trials. Many people have discussed that at length. And I think the overall theme of the study, even though the primary endpoint was not met, um, is a different one. I actually think that the study should encourage us to use hydroxychloroquine blood levels. So let's talk about it a little bit more. This was a randomized controlled trial. It was um, double-blinded and placebo-controlled, and it compared standard versus adjusted hydroxychloroquine dosing, aiming at a target level of above 1,000 nanograms per milligrams. The study was initially powered for 200 patients and 171 were eventually included in the study. These patients had been on steady doses of hydroxychloroquine. So either 200 milligrams or 400 milligrams for I think an extended period of time, I believe it was six months. Non-adherent patients were excluded in this study and patients who were at higher risk were also excluded. That includes patients with retinopathy, low renal clearance, liver failure and so on. They focused on a specific intervention group, which were people that had hydroxychloroquine levels between 100 and 750 nanograms, thinking that that group is likely subtherapeutic and would benefit from intervention. So they randomized one-to-one, -one, and then based on the initial level that they got, they estimated what the required dose for the patient would need to be for the next study duration, seven months and then gave the patient either, uh, if randomized to the control group, the previous dose that the patient had been on, or if randomized to the actual um, intervention group, a dose that could either be 200 milligrams, 400 milligrams, 600 milligrams, or 800 milligrams daily. Importantly, the hydroxychloroquine levels were not actively managed. It was a one-time adjustment, and in fact, even though the primary outpoint was not met, there are multiple reasons why that could be the case. So first, they had a very interesting observation. Between inclusion in the study and randomization, there was a spontaneous uptake of hydroxychloroquine use. They realized that the dose of hydroxychloroquine jumped by about 136 points on average. In some patients, that was up to 500, and others, it was lower. And at the end of that first episode, first phase of the trial, before they even randomized, they only had 114 patients left that were actually in that subtherapeutic range. So they basically lost one third of the study. Also, most patients, given that this was a one time change, did not achieve continuous levels above 1,000. In fact, only 39 patients were able to achieve that goal. And then the flare rate was surprisingly low compared to what's expected in such a population. So what we, I think we can acknowledge that the overall um, uh, ability for the trial to be successful is probably not uh, set up in the right way. It is a very important trial. And when they looked at subsets, specifically those that actually were able to achieve what they tried to achieve, meaning they consistently had hydroxychloroquine levels above 1,000 nanograms per milligram over the duration of the study compared to those that did not, they actually showed a um, marked decrease in flare rate. The difference that they observed in the seven month was a difference of 35% in the control group versus 20 percent 
in the active group, in the intervention group. That was not significant, but it missed significance only by a little. When they now took that population and excluded patients that flared right after randomization, this difference became significant. And the logic here is that if you flare within the first couple of weeks of the intervention, it's likely not because you changed the dose. You were probably bound to have a flare anyway. And when they looked at that population, the difference between intervention group and control group was a flare rate of 32.7% in the control group and 14% in the intervention group. And that was significant. So based on that signal, the flare rate would have been cut in half. Overall in the study, the only predictor of flare was um, a, a low hydroxychloroquine level at baseline. And at baseline, the levels dramatically differed between patients who had active disease and inactive disease. So I would argue, even though the, tr the trial clearly failed its primary endpoint, it is still highest level evidence that such a strategy can be successful. All right. Well, that is quite a solid response. Um, yeah. So I know, you know, Max brought up a, a lot of interesting points about how this is an <laughs> overall well-designed trial. It's a randomized, you know, controlled trial, but there are definitely some issues um, that were well raised about uh, the patients that were included. And Mike, do you want to comment at all? Or oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of half empty and half full going back and forth on this trial. So, um, you know, let me just give a couple main rejoinders here. Um, the first is that um, I actually think that in some ways this trial was the best case scenario for this practice. You know, Max rightly points out that they excluded some people and included others, right? But one of the groups that they excluded are these people who were probably just non-adherent. And I, I'm really worried about that group of people and this practice. So that's one where I, I don't know what would have happened if you put them into the trial. I can understand why they would, I could see it cutting either way, but they did exclude people who were super therapeutic. And that was actually the vast majority of patients, 354 versus 209. And so it, had you included people who were, who were super therapeutic, some of whom probably would have had their hydroxychloroquine doses lowered, that I think would have really tilted this even worse against monitoring levels. Because now instead of what you're doing, instead of these people continuing at where, where they were, then they may have put in this population people who got less hydroxychloroquine. And that, so I think in some ways the design actually favors this practice in a way that it wouldn't be favored in, in the real world setting. Max is right that a lot of people, their hydroxychloroquine levels went up in both groups um, after randomization. But so there's a couple of reasons for that. One is the Hawthorne effect, which you know we see this in all studies where you when you study people, they start to act a little bit differently. And so I think um, if you'd asked me at the outset, you know, if we start studying all these people People, what will happen? I would have told you, you know, I bet a lot of them will take their medicines more regularly. So I would say that's not unexpected. That's kind of baked into the cake of this sort of evidence. And, and, and furthermore, I mean, there were two thirds of people who still had what we would consider sub-therapeutic levels. So it, it definitely hurt them and it hurt their ability to find a difference. But I don't think that had there been some numerical difference between them, we could probably squint hard at it and blame this, but there really wasn't anything there for the primary endpoint. 
And then one last thing about the subgroups, you know, th these subgroups are always so enticing in trials like this, but um, crucially, a lot of these subgroup analyses broke randomization to look at them. You're saying, you know, people who entered the trial with X, you know, those people were randomized. And when you go back and you say, well, if we look at this subgroup, you're not talking about a randomized controlled trial anymore. You're, you're talking about an observational study. And a lot of what we see is the difference between randomization and observational data, where if you look at this like an observational study, you say, well, who did badly? Well, the people who came in without very much or with low plaquenil levels, those people did badly. Um, who had more flares? Those people. And then you say, well, if you randomize them and we do their strategy, what happens? And the answer is it doesn't seem like it helped very much. But so I think that some of this is just breaking randomization and seeing that people who are adherent to their medications and who had therapeutic levels on the coming in do better. And that's what we see in all of the observational data. It's a very consistent picture. If you have a high, higher level, seem to have less flares. So, you know, I think that this is where we kind of get the, to the crux of the matter for me, which is this observational data is telling one story, but interventional studies are just a, a very different beast. And I think they're telling a different one. All right, thank you. Well, actually, that kind of segues pretty well into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. Mike, you know, you had mentioned that you thought um, checking these levels or monitoring these levels might actually lead to um, a decrease in the use of, of hydroxychloroquine, so like less use of that medication, um, I'm guessing based on uh, high levels that are measured. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how that, you know, what that brings up to you or why that concerns you and why you think measuring these levels would actually result in um, decreased use of, of hydroxychloroquine for our patients? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, I think that we're all aware that the, the arc of lupus history the past couple of years has been towards lowering hydroxychloroquine. Um, our patients today on average are probably getting substantially less than they were 10 years ago because of these opto recommendations that came out. And so, you know, it, it, it's clear to me that there are a lot of people out there, ophthalmologists, cardiologists, et cetera, who like to reduce and take our patients off hydroxychloroquine. And I think that, you know, we're well aware of the costs of doing that and, and how high they can be. And so I'm always hesitant of anything that would reduce, result in lowering hydroxychloroquine levels. I mean, the studies that have showed this works, people were on a lot of hydroxychloroquine and we're giving them less and less. So I, what, what, the way I see this playing out is that people will get these levels and, you know, someone will be at, you know, 1900 and their physician will say, well, that's a little high. Let's drop you down a little bit, you know, and that, and doing that kind of thing has just never been tested. There is an association with supertherapeutic hydroxychloroquine levels and retinal toxicity. But, um, you know, the retinal toxicity, I mean, I've, I've never had a patient go blind and I've had a lot of patients lose their kidneys and, you know, have really horrible side effects from, from lupus. And so I worry about the retinal toxicity, but it's something that I think we can manage. Whereas lowering hydroxychloroquine dosing on some subset of patients who may have not had complications, it just makes me worry that we're going to wind up walking them into complications. And, you know, when you roll these things out at a national or international level, it's kind of like an implementation question. You know, even in the best of cases, I could see this being concerning, but with people just willy nilly seeing numbers and going down on hydroxychloroquine doses because of it, it just makes me nervous. I'd, I'd be curious to hear from Max though, how, how are you doing this and, and why, why should I not be so concerned about that? Yeah, I, I, Mike, I thank you for, for, for going into this in a little bit more detail. So two points, and then I'll answer your question. Um, sometimes I wonder when you're in clinic, if you would actually 
you listen to a patient's heart because I'm sure there's no data that it can detect anything or <laughs> change patient's outcomes. But um, uh, two points that you raised. Um, uh, one was uh, your concern about lowering hydroxychloroquine levels. And I, I have to say, I don't share that concern, um, at least not in my clinical practice. Uh, I cannot exclude that in, in other scenarios this might happen. But I think the overall phenomenon that we have experienced as rheumatologists in the last few years, particularly since the publication of the 2014 study uh, from Kaiser Permanente and then the ophthalmology recommendations, the revised ones in 2016, is that there has been a measurable push across the United States that's reflected in uh, prescription patterns, uh, prescribing patterns of lowering hydroxychloroquine. And one of the reasons why people have done that is that it clearly states in the guidelines now that instead of the previously often used metric of 6.5 mix per kick ideal body weight, people are now recommending to use five mix per kick actual body weight. And that is purely based on that one study uh, from, uh, that was published in JAMA Ophthalmology. There is concern with that on my end. I think, and I experience in my own clinical practice that I get many more emails asking me to lower hydroxychloroquine levels, at lower hydroxychloroquine uh, doses in patients that should not have their doses lowered. Patients at high risk of disease flare with potentially devastating effect. One of the reasons is that the number in that was chosen and that is advocated in the guidelines is misinterpreted. It actually states five mix per kg uh, actual body weight and the actual body weight is indeed probably the better way of prescribing hydroxychloroquine than the ideal body weight because ideal body weight tends to overdose people at low BMI. But the five mix per kg is derived from a study where they actually only looked at the dispensed doses of hydroxychloroquine by the pharmacy. Given the large amount of non-adherence that we're experiencing in the lupus population, that reflects prescribed doses of much more than five mix per kg, probably around 6.2 mix per kg if you look in their population which mostly included RA patients who probably may be more compliant as a, as a whole. And it, it might dramatically be actually, actually push the number of prescribed doses above 6.5 mix per kick. So I would argue that we in the last few years have, because of the recommendation, falsely lowered or been subjected to, to calls to lower hydroxychloroquine doses where it probably was not appropriate. I don't share the concern that lowering hydroxychloroquine um, based on blood levels is something that's going to happen. There will certainly be individual patients where you find a hydroxychloroquine whole blood level above 2000, way beyond what has been shown in trials and based on published data to be probably therapeutic and in a range where retinal toxicity is highly enriched. So in those patients, I would argue, you do the patient a benefit by lowering the dose. It's unlikely that there is additional benefit. There's a high certainty of retinopathy, especially if the patient stays on the drug more than 10 years. In clinical practice, I think 
what is actually happening that overall the doses of hydroxychloroquine are either increased or patients become more compliant. We really need to talk about net effects because if 50% of patients are not compliant to their medication and I have a means to actually get them to be more compliant, be it an Hawthorne effect, be it because I have conversations with them and they appreciate the concern that I'm showing to them, or frankly, because I'm taking the time to now explain them why in the first place they're taking hydroxychloroquine, it makes innate sense to us, it doesn't make innate sense to the patient, then I'm actually, as a net effect, increasing the exposure of hydroxychloroquine across the whole population of lupus patients. And I would say, we know that lupus exposure to hydroxychloroquine and lupus has many benefits, the only drug to improve survival. So if I can sway 30 to 50% of my population of lupus patients to actually get exposed to a drug that I know is going to be beneficial, the net effect is that of an increased exposure to hydroxychloroquine and not one where I'm concerned that I'm inappropriately lowering hydroxychloroquine in my patients. Great. I think you guys have brought up honestly really interesting points about um, you know population health and individual level health and how we should be what we should be targeting whether it's numbers or disease flares and some of the toxicities that happen when the disease becomes more active um, versus you know the toxicities of our medication. So you both brought up really interesting points. Um, I do want to just close with one question. I know because um, it always you know for me it comes always back to sort of your relationship with the patient, right? And, and Mike brought up an interesting point about how he worried that hydroxychloroquine monitoring may actually um, disrupt or cause issues with the doctor-patient relationship um, by building some distrust. And I thought that was a very interesting point. And I wanted to know, um, Max, what you thought about that. And then Mike, of course, you can close with, with your thoughts about it as well. Yeah, I, I, I do think that's probably a concern that's shared by multiple rheumatologists, not just Mike. Um, so we have to acknowledge that. In, in my personal opinion, I have yet to experience a scenario where that has hurt my relationship with the patient. It really comes down to how you do it and how you implement it in your daily medical practice. I don't think measuring hydroxychloroquine blood levels should be anything that puts the patient on the spot that, you know, is in any way associated with a punitive response. And, 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 and that's not the goal, right? The goal is to have a common goal with the patient that is really about increasing their health. I think Mike and I agree there 100%. And sometimes having a number just makes that a little easier. I have yet to find a patient who felt in any way put on the spot by discussing a blood level. And there may be many reasons to have a low blood level. Some people had prior surgery and don't absorb as much. There are variations in, in genetics. You need to tease that out, but you just need to have an open discussion with the patient. And I think overall, it is well received by patients in my personal opinion. Yeah, it's funny because like hearing you talk about it, I, I fully believe that you've never had any trouble with it. And this is where I just worry about interventions being expanded, you know, 
I, I think that people who are coming from your perspective on this, it's probably an asset. But I, I do worry rolling it out in mass, whether that that flips as far as a doctor-patient relationship is concerned. And I mean, that's kind of where you just got to train people and have good people be rheumatologists. But uh, that that that's I mean, it's it's good to hear that it's gone well for you. I mean, I think that the low numbers are are, are common. I mean, I think probably half of people are non-adherent to some degree if you define under 750 as your point. So, I mean, you're going to be having a lot of these conversations and, that, and that's kind of where I flip this and just say, you know, if, if half my patients are not adherent to some degree, I should just be having that conversation anyway. And just saying, you know, do you take your medicines? And they say, yes. I say, well, let me talk about why it's important to take your medicines. Yeah. No. So I don't know. I, I think that's good to hear that done right. This doesn't do that, but I still worry about rolling it out en masse. Yeah, Mike, Mike I, I fully agree with you, right? You probably should have that discussion with your patient anyway, probably the first time you start them on hydroxychloroquine, right? Yeah. And I use that as an opportunity to actually sit down with my patient, tell them this is going to be one of the most important drugs that I'll be giving you because it really targets the core of what we think is driving lupus. And, and, and people need some framework for all the hundreds of medicine that are thrown at them from different providers and some way to navigate what's important, what's not important. Yeah. I also just want to emphasize that it's probably a mark of compliance in general, right? So with hydroxychloroquine, yes, it's one thing and we know all the benefits and we know the risks, but if the patient is not taking hydroxychloroquine, do I think that my patient with lupus nephritis is taking MMF? Probably not, right? So I, I think it, it is a potential marker of um, patients who are at extreme risk and they might not be aware of the high price that might be actually paying down the road. Um, let me maybe say two more things, because I think there's a lot of confusion about hydroxychloroquine blood levels in general, if, if I may. Um, people are confused about what tests to order if they want to pursue that. And people are confused about what targets there are, if any. And without that, basically it becomes a moot point. So when we talked about levels so far, we have only been talking about whole blood levels of hydroxychloroquine concentrations. So measured in whole blood, usually by HPLC. But there are other tests out there that measure it in serum and in plasma. It's important to know that if you measure it in serum and plasma, the levels are about half. So if you by any chance heard any numbers now thrown around and you're checking regularly plasma or serum levels, be aware that the numbers reflect half. Um, there is a pretty good correlation between serum hydroxychloroquine levels and uh, whole blood levels. The R squared is about 0.8. There's not a good correlation between plasma and whole blood. So if you have the option, you know, you probably should go with whole blood or if you don't have that available with serum levels, being aware of the differences in overall level. And then that just let me uh, make two quick comments about targets. Um, levels of whole blood hydroxychloroquine less than 200 generally indicate uh, very severe non-adherence. Frankly, there might be 10 or 20% in your population of lupus patients who would have undetectable levels, meaning they, they don't take the drug at all, right? It doesn't get to them. Wherever the problem is, it might be cost. It's probably worthwhile to unearth that. 
Um, and then there is a, a, a large population that's somewhere hovering between 500 and, and 750 or 1,000. And those may frankly be subtherapeutic. The jury is still out. Most of the data points towards therapeutic efficacy somewhere uh, above 750, probably above 1,000. It's more continuum. And there's, I think, emerging data that some levels are just too high. So if the level is above 1,500, you know, I, I wonder whether there is additional benefit. So just something as, as you know, these numbers are, are not definitive. Uh, they are going to vary and will probably be refined over time. But it's a rough estimate for, for people who are thinking about using hydroxychloroquine blood levels, which frankly you should do. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. No, that is really useful. I think it's important for us to know, um, you know, what are we actually looking at when we're when we're ordering these tests? Because if we don't really understand what we're looking for, we don't know how to apply that or use it if we choose to measure those values in patients. Um, I think there's obviously a lot more that we're going to learn as we move forward and as these tests become more available to folks. And you know, whether or not we believe or don't believe in the motion, people will be ordering it, um, and then what what they start using it for or doing with that information. Uh, will be important to follow over time. Um, but for now, I want to just thank both of you for making really strong arguments for your sides. Um, and I am very interested to see how many people's minds you've changed. Again, um, the motion that we discussed here today was um, hydroxychloroquine levels should be monitored in patients with lupus. And Dr. Koenig argued for the motion and Dr. Putman solidly argued against the motion. So let's, um, you know, I'll let Mike talk about it. Yeah, no, thank you so much. <laughs> this is a lot of fun. And uh, I actually learned a ton doing this with Max. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Max. It was fantastic. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> uh, appreciate it, Mike. Yeah, no, actually digging to the literature, it, it's, a, it, it's a fascinating topic, right? And I think um, looking how in the last few years, just like more and more is coming out, it's going to be interesting to follow. <laughs>